Okay, first of all, apologies for the long break between the last episode and this one. There's going to be more on that at the end of the episode, so stick around to find out what the heck that was all about. Um, But for now, I hope that this excellent conversation about the interplay between quantum and classical is well worth the wait. I haven't said this in a while, but take it away, me from the past. All right, so I am here with Itamar Sivan, who is the CEO of Quantum Machines. Um, Itamar, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for hosting me. My pleasure. Awesome. So we're going to jump into, uh, we're going to talk a lot about Quantum Machines, obviously, because that's your your company. And we're going to talk about your orchestration platform, how it works. Uh, we're going to dive into a lot of that. But before we do that, could you give us a bit of your your background and how you got into quantum computing in the first place? Sure. So uh, most of my background is um, quantum. So uh, basically, I've I've, I've spent um, quite a few years um, in uh, quantum research. Um, so I did my PhD in quantum electronics um, at the um, uh, Weizmann Institute uh, uh, in Israel. Uh, before that, I did my master thesis in, in Oxford, uh, working on quantum optics. Um, and, uh, did my, um, um, did my bachelor's at the Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris where, uh, well, it was my bachelor's, so not too much research, but that's uh, like an institute, which has a lot of focus on, on quantum, uh, quantum research. So that's, I, I think that this is already where I, where I got my passion for quantum information processing, let's call it. Um, so, so yeah, quite a few years of, you know, interest and, and, and work in, in the field. And what, what initially did you go to, I, I missed what the university was in Paris, but uh, did you go there because they had this, this strong presence in quantum information or was it for another reason? Uh, not at all. No, no, no. So, um, the, so the name is Ecole Normale Supérieure. And um, I went there because it's a uh, an excellent um, academic institution. Um, I did not know that the, there is so much emphasis there on, on quantum research. Um, and um, but uh, once I got there, I, I started developing the passion for the field. So yeah, if I if I had asked freshman uh, Itamar, so what do you think about quantum information processing? What do you, what do you think you would have said? Yeah. I don't know what that is or it's boring or what? Um, wow. So I think that, um, um, if you would ask a freshman Itamar, uh, what he thinks of, uh, quantum information processing, then, um, uh, then he just realized how, um, how crazy it is. Um, and, um, uh, how much, um, we could basically leverage quantum um, for speeding up um, uh, uh, computational processes, uh, particular computational processes. And he'd be super excited to, to go ahead and do it um, uh, by his own hands. Um, so that's kind of what drew the understanding of these things is what led me um, afterwards to pursue um, in experimental research in quantum um, quantum information, so actually stepping into labs um, to do experimental research um, and try to um, 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 realize quantum states um, in the lab and, and you know uh, um, and um, um, work on them. So af- after you got your PhD, um, did you go straight to quantum machines, or did you work on some other other projects before that? So 
yes, so quantum machines is my uh, first next step after the PhD. So um, I did have some activities in parallel to my PhD. So for example, I founded and managed the entrepreneurship program of the Weizmann Institute where I did my PhD. Uh, but um, yeah, so um, um, first stop after after the PhD was um, the, the startup, quantum machines. Awesome. And what if you could give us a broad summary, what does quantum machines do? So with quantum machines, we develop the systems um, that um, um, control and operate quantum processors um, and allow to realize their potential. Um, so as you clearly know, there is a, a, a promise in quantum processors um, for immense computational power, right? That's why we're so interested in quantum computers because they could potentially unleash um, immense computational power. Um, but it, it, it appears that um, in order to unleash this competition of power um, from quantum processors, in fact, we need other systems which are themselves cla- completely classical um, um, that themselves operate the quantum processors and allow to realize their potential. That's, that's what we do with quantum machines. Okay, interesting. Is this is this the approach of when there's a the gold rush? You know, the saying of if there's a gold rush, how do you make the most money? You sell shovels. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so I've, I have heard this analogy. I'm I'm not sure it's a perfect one, but um, I, I'd accept it. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So this the way that um, I'm looking at your website it seems like the way that you're controlling qubits is um, what you call the quantum orchestration platform. Um, and what what is that other than you know a, a it's a, a box that controls qubits? How how does that work? So, um, in order to explain, let let me use a, a, a certain analogy. Okay, so um, the analogy is 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 the following. So, as I said earlier, um, quantum computers have the promise for immense computational power, right? And this um, um, computational power stems from the quantum processor itself, right? Where you've got the quantum bits and where the magic happens, right? But we always like the analogy of a quantum processor to a muscle, right? You can imagine a muscle that can do extremely heavy lifting. You can imagine the strongest muscle on earth. That's the quantum processor in terms of computational power, right? It's like the strongest muscle on earth for computing, right? But then extending on this analogy, I'm sure you'll agree with me that even the strongest muscle on earth needs a different system to operate it, right? In fact, the muscle is pretty passive, right? In fact, it needs the brain to operate it. It needs the brain to send it commands and to realize its potential, right? And this is, if you wish, what we develop for quantum computers. We develop the systems that operate quantum processors, and they allow to realize their potential, yes. And now, indeed, as you say, these are partly hardware, so boxes with hardware inside and chips and, you know, um, and all these things, uh, but also uh, plenty of software on, 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 on top of that, right? So, um, so, yes, indeed, we provide systems which are hardware and software all together um, that allows to drive and uh, realize the potential of quantum processors. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a good analogy. Um, this sort of body analogy, almost, because you can extend that to you've got this muscle that's the the quantum processor, 
and it can be as strong as you want it to. But even if you've got it hooked up to a brain, uh, it's not going to do anything unless it's also hooked up to a skeletal system and uh, the other organs that you need. So you've got to have, you know, your dilution refrigerator or your, your readout architecture, your software above that. Um, I, I like that analogy. That's 100%. Yeah, I agree. So in fact, the quantum computer um, as a whole is is quite a system. So there are multiple layers and each one of them is super complex. And while we're focused um, quite a bit on the quantum processor itself, um, there is a lot more. There is a lot more in the computer. Um, and yeah, as you say, so, you know, I mean, even the strongest muscle on earth that can in principle, you know, lift up, I don't know, a whole, uh, a whole car, um, without a brain and a skeleton and so on and so forth, it cannot even pick up the lightest feather. Right. Right. Yeah. So then what level, um, how would you describe the level of the stack that this quantum orchestration platform operates at? going from, you know, it's obviously not the actual quantum computing hardware, but it's also not the application layer of writing uh, Shor's algorithm and that stuff. So where, where in between those two is it? Okay, so technically speaking, um, the quantum orchestration platform like has an input, which mm. is quantum algorithms at a very, very um, low-level language. I can elaborate about that. So input... Um, quantum algorithms in low-level quantum programming language. And the output is the, the pulses that are sent to the qubits and operate on them. And by the way, this is, this is also connected to the analogy that I gave earlier because the brain sends pulses to the muscle, right, through the neural system and thereby operates it, right? Um, and this is what we do. We take algorithms in low-level software and we... Um, eventually, we um, um, uh, translate them into analog pulses, microwave pulses, for example, that are sent to the qubits and, and run the algorithm on them. Uh, so when you say that this is, this is low-level programming, are we talking gate level, um, a little bit higher than gate level, or, and then you translate it into pulses? So um, it's far lower than the gate level. Mm -hmm. In fact, there is much below the, the gate level. Um, because even gate level, so, you, you know, for example, if I talk in, in logic gates, like, you know, a Hadamard gate or a CNOT gate, um, when, a, when we want to operate a CNOT gate on, a, on, on two qubits um, in different processors, this may take a very different shape, a very different form. So there is still some languages below the gate level. Um, and there is um, compilation processes towards those. Uh, so we operate at the lowest levels of, of uh, quantum programming. Um, so you can kind of, the, the, the very rough, you know, hand-waving analogy that I'd give is that, you know, if a gate level is kind of like a Python equivalent or so, or MATLAB uh, equivalent, so we're operating at the C++ level. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So the next question that I had is how how big is the the physical part? Because you mentioned that the orchestration platform is uh, this this box actually does the pulse pro, the pulse sending to the qubits. Um, so how big is that box, and how many qubits could you theoretically control with it? So there are two things to say here. So how how big is it physically? So it depends on the number of qubits that you're controlling and the architecture of the quantum processor that is being controlled, 
right? Mm -hmm. So typically I'd say that, you know, for, you know, the biggest quantum processors out there would need to fill in like, let's say a whole rack, right? Like a mm -hmm. server rack. And um, how many qubits can we control? We can control the biggest QPUs out there today. Um, and our system is highly scalable. So um, we can control even, in principle, even thousands of qubits. Okay, interesting. So it it scales both in terms of how many qubits you need, and the more qubits that you need, the more control infrastructure you're going to have to have to get. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because um, the amount of computation, classical computation required um, to control um, um, a single qubit, um, it does decrease with the number of qubits. Um, but still, um, the more qubits you have, the more compute classical compute power do you need to, to back it. Interesting. Okay. So then you said that you can use this with, um, it, it depends uh, what size it is, will depend on what architecture you want to use it with. Um, and your website says that this OPX will, or sorry, uh, yeah, uh, OPX will work with all quantum technologies. Um, how, how does that work? Because I know that it's different frequencies and um, you're sending laser pulses or microwave pulses for trapped ion versus superconducting. So um, yeah, how, how are you able to support all of these? Okay, so it's a, it's a great question. So um, in order to simplify, I'll say the following thing. So um, to a good extent, um, if you look at a pulse that we send to a quantum bit, you can decompose it into two elements. One is what we call the carrier frequency, right? So that's like um, you can imagine a, a pulse. So it's it, it has like a, um, a an underlying frequency. So like a sine wave, right? So you can imagine like a sine wave um, 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 at different frequencies. Um, and the other um, element is the envelope, what we call the envelope. So um, so um, in 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 a very good um, uh, to a very good extent the frequent the underlying frequency um, of the uh, pulse for example whether it is a microwave pulse or a laser pulse right it dictates what qubit you're talking to right but the envelope of the um, uh, of the pulse it says what gate you're operating on it Right. So again, you take a pulse and you decompose it into two elements. One would say what what qubit you're talking to. The other would say, what are you going to tell it? Right. So while the underlying frequency may differ very much between one qubit to the other, again, from microwave to a laser, the envelopes, namely the way we um, talk to the qubits and tell them what to do. Right. Um, what gates to operate um, is very similar, right? So um, in other terms, if I take a microwave pulse um, in order to talk to a superconducting qubit, and if I take a laser pulse in order to talk to a trapped ions, the modification that I will do to either of those is the same 
um, um, is very similar. It's very, very similar uh, in order to operate on these different qubits. Um, so all in all, um, we, we can and we are developing a system which is qubit agnostic. Um, so beyond that, there are uh, different, different uh, differences. Like, for example, the readout of a uh, um, quantum processor based on trapped ions is done with a camera, for example. Right, mm-hmm. but this is this is something we can address. Right, I mean we can interface the camera. Right, um, so of course there are some differences and some sometimes the frequencies are slightly different and so on and so forth. But the majority of the control level layers is 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 very similar. It's really interesting uh, that yeah, with this superconducting versus ion trap example, because. I'm thinking about like um, photonic, uh, for instance, Xanadu's photonic quantum computer that uses um, Q nodes. My my understanding is that they work fundamentally different with like light squeezing. Would this um, OPX be able to do photonics like that, or would you need a different sort of photonics? So you're correct. Um... While there are differences, big differences between superconducting qubits and trapped ions and silicon qubits and um, and uh, tweezer arrays, um, in fact, all of these together are much more similar one to the other than each and every one of them is is, is similar to the photonic based uh, processors. So, in fact, um, the photonics based um, processors are from an architecture perspective are completely different. It's a, it's a different paradigm. Um, and um, I can elaborate about that because this is very interesting. So in fact, if you wish classical processors work in a very particular way, and that is that you have, you have logic um, gates, which are embedded physically into the processor. For example, if you open a GPU, let's say you're opening now a GPU and look, you look inside, what are you going to find? You're going to find plenty of multipliers which are embedded by fabrication to the processor. Right? And then once, if you want to do a, a, a multiplication, for example, so you, what you're going to do, you're going to send with electric voltages, you're going to send, let's say, two numbers, um, two and three, towards a physical multiplier. Right, so that's what you're going to do, and then at the other end, you, you're going to get a six, right, which is the result of the m- multiplication. And the fact is that the mainstream quantum computers work the other way around. What do I mean by that? I mean that what we store in our qubits is the data. Let's say the two and the three. And now, if we want to operate them, what we do is we send the mul- multiplier or any logic operation to the data to the qubits. Right, so it's really the other way around. If in a classical processor we send the data to the um, to the uh, logic gates, in the quantum computer, typically we send the gates to the logic to sorry, we send the gates to the data. Now, surprisingly enough, what is considered still kind of a niche um, in quantum computing, which is photonic uh, uh, quantum processors is more similar to the way it works with classical processors. So in a photonic uh, quantum processor, what you've got is the data, which is embedded into photons, 
which are themselves, well, flying kind of in, in, at the speed of light um, and are running through logic uh, operations. So um, um, typically these would be small units, kind of a, a nonlinear units, um, um, uh, modules that, that, that apply the logic operations to the, um, uh, to the photons. Um, and for your question, so yes, the um, standard OPX and the standard hardware that uh, uh, quantum machines is developing is um, does not work um, kind of out of the box for photonic based uh, processors. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that was that was something that was tripping me up because I, I know that they are so different. It's good to know like how are they different, um, and. One of the things that I know that you've talked about before um, that maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on here is that um, quantum computers will always need classical computers. And this is, I don't think this is a very uh, controversial topic or claim, but a lot of people who maybe just be getting into quantum computing don't really realize that quantum computers aren't just classical computers, but better. So yeah, uh, what are, why, why will quantum computers always need classical computers so there there, there are, um a couple of reasons for that but there's also a fundamental thing so <clears throat> quantum computers as we know so they they provide in theory they provide speed ups right so what does it mean it means that the, the you can take an algorithm and run it on a classical computer and it will take um some amount of time Right or more technically, it has some complexity. Right, so the amount of time and the way with the way it scales with the size of the input. Right, um, and we say that quantum computers have speed ups compared to classical computers if they can run um, particular algorithms faster than the classical computers. Right, or more technically, if they have um, a different complexity, a lower complexity. Right, so for example, uh, maybe. Um, um, a linear complexity versus a, a, a an exponential complexity and so on and so forth, right? But the thing is that we don't get the same speed ups for all algorithms, right? So there are particular algorithms where we get an exponential speed up and exponential means like the difference between like could be 100,000 years to a few minutes, right? So exponential is a huge difference. Um, and for some algorithms, we could get no speed up at all. Right. And if you don't get a speed up at all, you better not run it on the quantum computer because a quantum computer is one one hell of a mess. Right. So you don't want to you don't want to use it if, if you're not getting a speed up out of it. So. It is it is quite um, common uh, belief or common knowledge that um, quantum computers will be leveraged for particular sets of algorithms. Right. Not for all. Um, and for all the, in, in fact, for, for, for the majority, um, they will not be used. Um, um, and for all the rest, basically, yeah, classical computers will, re will remain in use. But the great thing is that we believe that the sets of algorithms that we can speed up with quantum computers is, in fact, quite significant. And significant enough that we believe that quantum computers will ultimately well, disrupt all industries. Yeah, it's it's interesting, this, this idea that um, there are only certain algorithms that quantum computers are good at. And 
it's also interesting, I know from from your perspective, probably from quantum machines, looking at the fact that you're not going to be able to, or actually, this is a question, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think you'll ever be able to control a quantum computer with a quantum computer, you're always going to want to control a quantum computer with a classical computer. Um, would there ever be a world in which you'd control a quantum computer with another quantum computer? Um, so that's um, that's a good question, um, and not such a tr- straightforward one. Um, you could, in principle, there, there could be a layer of a quantum controller to control a quantum processor, um, but then eventually you, you, you're going to have to have a, a classical controller for the last quantum controller in uh, quantum uh, uh, quantum processor in, in, in line, right? Because, okay. well, this is a fundamental thing since uh, you and I and all the uh, uh, people listening to this po- podcast are classical. So we're classical beings. Um, so ultimately we cannot interact with quantum system directly. Um, so... Um, it is um, fair to believe that we will also always have a, cl- a classical controller for quantum processors. Hmm. It, this might be this might be too far out there, but I'm interested. Would there be any benefit in having a quantum controller for a, a quantum processor, even if that one is then in turn controlled by a classical? Uh, I cannot say I have a good answer for that. I think uh, it's worth some, uh, I think that uh, um, probably it's worth uh, quite a lot of research and uh, I'm sure that many PhDs can be dedicated to this question uh, by itself. Uh, I don't have a good good question, but I can tell um, um, quite, well, I don't know if for sure, but yeah, quite for sure. If, if we were classical ourselves, then the... Um, um, the yeah so building a quantum computer would have been much easier but that's well that's straightforward yeah sure. yeah fair enough fair enough um is there anything is there anything else that you uh, want to touch on about the relationship between quantum computing and classical computing or quantum machines or opx that we haven't gotten to so far I think that um, one very important thing to understand is like the how significant um, or how much computational power we will need in order to operate full-scale quantum computers. I think that um, we're we're not even um, close to understanding that, um, um, and uh, this again stems from the same um, um, from the simple fact that we know that. Um, you know, we cannot even, of course, describe the information contained in a quantum processor, right? We we always say that in order to um, contain the information that could be contained in a quantum processor with 280 quantum bits, we would need a classical processor with more bits than the number of atoms in the universe, right? So we cannot describe the information in a quantum processor at a single point of time, nor nor can we evolve it in a um, um, in 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 a, in in a comprehensive way uh, in time, nor can we verify its results, nor can we um, uh, perfectly optimize the gates that we send to it. So um, these things are extremely challenging because 
the because of the fact that quantum systems under control are just um, too complex. Um, so I think that with time we'll be seeing like entire high performance computing infrastructures leveraged for the control of quantum processors. Um, and um, um, yeah, so it's it's gonna it's gonna be interesting. <laughs> yeah, that that's interesting because I wouldn't think that assuming that there are simple rules where you take in uh, gate level and you turn it into pulse level, you would need you know lots of high performance compute. So what do you see these computers as as doing? Are they running more complicated algorithms to determine what the optimal um, pulse shape is, or what what would that look like? That's a good example. That's a good example. But in order to do that, what you just said is like in 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 a, in a trivial way, you know, just to find the optimal uh, uh, pulse that could, in principle, t- uh, take some very heavy um, machine learning algorithmics, like. Um, um, heavy lifting, uh, machine learning, uh, stuff. Okay. Interesting. Very cool. So uh, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time here. So I've got last three questions that I always ask everyone. First one is what do you see as the biggest promise in, or sorry, yeah, the biggest problem in quantum computing today? The biggest problem in quantum computing today is certainly, um, the development of a far more uh, stable qubit. Yeah, I I, I have gotten that uh, a lot. Um, some people have gone so far as to say that it's not controversial. Um, but yeah, I. And then the flip side of that is, what do you see as the biggest promise in quantum computing in the next five to ten years? Okay, so that's a great question. So I think that. Um, and allow me to a bit avoid the question. So I think that we were, we're not even close to uh, comprehending the biggest promise of quantum computers. I believe that quantum computers will basically unleash um, computational power that is is unprecedented. Um, and um, um, it is impossible to foresee um, what will the biggest um, impact and the biggest implications of those computers would be. Um, I think that, um, like, from my perspective, um, it's it's a bit like, you know, showing a, a, a caveman, you know, um, tens of thousands of years ago, you know, a, a phone and asking him, you know, what's the best thing you can do with it, you know, and he would, you know, it's, it's nothing for him, right? He, he cannot even imagine, uh, you know, it's just a caveman, right? So, um, yeah, I don't think we can anticipate what we'll, what we'll have with, um, uh, with quantum computers, but I think it's going to change our world um, in a very dramatic way, let's say. Very cool. Uh, Itamar, this has been great and very informative. Uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're working on? Um, surely on our website. So just Google, you know, quantum machines. Um, uh, uh, you're going to find plenty of materials and, and information about us and, uh, um, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and, uh, we'll have to have you on in five to 10 years to see if we really were cavemen back today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. And thank you uh, for the audience, uh, for joining us.
Okay, so before I get to any questions and corrections, uh, there weren't any questions or corrections. There was a nice comment, though, so we'll get to that later. First of all, I just wanted to give an explanation for my long leave of absence. I know that I haven't posted anything since July, and I'm really sorry about that. If you like this podcast and you are expecting more regular content, um, I'm sorry, I was traveling um, for pretty much all of August, um, from my home all the way out to where I'm at college. Um, if you didn't know, this is my first year of college. So once I got to college, it was kind of crazy, um, figuring out my schedule, figuring out when I've got any sort of free time with which to do the podcast. And so, yeah, that's been, that's been absolutely insane. And then there were a couple, I had really well thought out plans to work on podcasts during the weekends. Um, and then I just had really rough weekends. Um, and so I wasn't able, like, I just was not in a state to do the podcast. Um, wasn't in a state to do much of anything, if I'm being honest. So that's just sort of a little bit of what's been going on. Um, the issue has been fixed. I'm doing uh, much better now. Um, but yeah, so I should be able to, I think, keep up a cadence of about an episode a month. I know that that's not the once every two weeks that I had been doing. Um, going back to once a month while I'm at school because there's a lot of other stuff going on. So that's what we should um, expect moving forward. This one's coming out in October. I expect the next episode sometime in November, as I say at the end of all the episodes, when I get to it, uh, if we're being honest. Uh, hopefully I can maybe keep up uh, more like a once every three weeks cadence, um, but no promises. I my my goal is once a month. So with that all said, um, thank you if you're still here, still listening, and you uh, are still supporting this podcast despite the the craziness that's been going on. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate anyone who's sharing this, who's talking about it. Um, yeah, just uh, uh, I love all that. Um, as speaking of people who appreciate this podcast, uh, someone named Simon reached out to say, uh, quote, thank you, uh, and that Quantum Computing Now is an awesome podcast. Uh, it was a really long email, um, so I won't read the whole thing here, but the basic gist of it was that Simon likes my honesty in the podcast. He's been listening uh, for a while while he's working out and uh, wants to hear more about quantum annealing uh, slash adiabatic quantum computing and how it compares to other modes of quantum computing. Um, Simon, thank you very much for reaching out. Um, I know I've already said a lot of this. If you're also, if you're interested in quantum annealing, adiab adiabatic quantum computing, um, yeah, let me know because if there's a lot of interest for that, I will absolutely find an expert um, who is working on that and um, talk with them. So if you would like to, let me know about that or send your own encouragement, questions, comments, or angry messages my way. You can do so via email, uh, minds or anchor voice messages. Those are all in the show notes. Uh, I'll say them here as well. Email oneethanhanson at protonmail.com. Mines, I'm at oneethanhanson. And then Anchor voice messages, you can find me on, uh, on Anchor. There's a link in the show notes as well. And you can just send a voice message and maybe I'll play it during the podcast if you're cool with that. All right, as per our usual arrangements, the link to the Quantum Machines website is in the show notes. There's been a lot of cool quantum computing news since the last episode, but I haven't really had time to collect them all together and put them in the show notes. Hopefully I'll do that for the next episode, but 
Other than that, no further resources for y'all. If you would like to support me so that I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. There's a link to that in the show notes or send me some crypto. I've got addresses in the show notes for that as well. At this point, I'm a college kid. Any money you send me is uh, furthering the education of the next generation, if you'd like to think about it that way. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.